Um, this week we're getting into looking at the, the life of David and his transformation, if you like, under suffering. Transformation under suffering that occurs as he's beginning to learn what it means to be a leader. So let me pray as we go into this time of uh, looking at God's word. Father, we, we do thank you that your word is given to us, that it will enrich us and empower us and strengthen us for the tasks that we have. And we just want to pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, we're going to find not only the story that is old in itself, but it is fresh to us. Fresh to us because it reminds us of whom we are and where we fit in. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we just ask that uh, your blessing be upon all that is uh, heard today. And uh, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, child abuse, family abuse, road rage, suicide bombers, all of these things sadly part of our everyday life, aren't they? We wish they weren't, but they are. That's just the simple fact of it. And we can't get past this when we read it in the newspaper. And yet when we look at it and find it in Scripture, we look at it and we sort of glibly go past it because we think, gosh, you know, this is just another story of, of uh, somebody getting himself in trouble. But the trouble that is caused by anger, the trouble that is caused by blind fury uh, is something that we can all be a victim of or we can all be party to. And so this morning as we look at the story of King David, we're going to find a story that we can all resonate with, a story about human nature and the human condition and how it is that this blind fury can be a part of our lives, and how it is that we have to learn from it, but learn to push through it. In this story this morning, because we're going to be covering over two chapters, um, what I've done is just going to list the things that we're going to look at today, because we're pushing through two chapters of Scripture, not without having to read it all. Uh, I thought I'd show you where we're heading. We're going to look at Saul's altar, how it is that Saul built an altar to himself. We're going to look at how it is that Saul uh, became, um, as it were, the victim of or the cause of an evil spirit coming upon him and how that threatened his existence as a king. King Saul is also threatened by David. And then we're going to look at how Jonathan, Saul's son, defends his friend David. And then we're going to see how God's presence overcomes this challenge of this blind fury of anger that Saul has been uh, afflicted with. Well, let's have a look by going back a couple of chapters from where we're going to be focusing on today. We're focusing on 1 Samuel 18 and 19, but we have to go back to the early part of this story about how it is that Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, is told that he is no longer to be the king, how he has fallen out of favor with God, and there now is going to be a new king raised up, David. Let's go back to that point of transition where he fell out of God's favor. So let's have a look at this in 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. Okay, what's happened? Under God's direction, Saul has taken the boys out and they've gone and had a scrap with the Amalekites. Okay, and they gave him a good whooping. All right, this is colloquial language. Gave him a good whooping. A little bit like the hurricanes did the lions last night. Okay, and so he comes back as the king, as the victor, 
And he's been the king now for about a decade. And he must have started to feel that he was pretty good at being king. He must have felt that he was a good military general. He must have felt that he was uh, God's chosen military leader and all the neighbours should be in fear of him. Not only that, but he must have felt that he was at the top of his game and nobody could be as good as him. So he goes to Carmel. Now, Carmel isn't just any place. Carmel is a sacred place in the, in the stories and the history of Israel. Not too long before this event, what had happened there is there had been a confrontation, a battle of, of good versus evil, where the prophet Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal, those who worship false gods, and he said, come to Carmel and there we will have a showdown, a showdown to see whose God is bigger and better. And so what they did is they built this huge altar and put these sacrifices of animals on that. And then uh, um, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal to call down fire from heaven to burn up the sacrifice. And so the story is amazing. In fact, it's quite amusing. Because the prophets of Baal are, are walking around this altar and they're calling down on their God and nothing happens. Elijah says, where's your God? Has he gone on holiday? That's literally what he said. Has your God taken a vacation? And then to prove just how big and powerful his God is, Elijah said, let's get a whole lot of water and pour it onto the sacrifice to make it harder to light. So that's what happens. They put gallons and gallons of water all over the sacrifice. And next thing, fire from heaven comes down and consumes the sacrifice. And the prophets of Baal are run off and many of them are put to death. So Carmel is this amazing place where people go there and they stand in awe and they, they go, wow, were you there? You weren't? Was your grandfather there? Did he tell you the story of how Elijah called down fire from heaven and how God got the victory that day over the, the foreign gods and the worshippers of Baal? And so it would have been a sacred place, a place deeply etched in the memory of Israel. And what happens? After whipping the Amalekites, Saul says, now it's time to build an altar, a monument to myself. And where does he do it? He does it at Carmel. And at that moment, something has changed, something has transitioned. And, and it's a very human thing that we're talking about here. We're having had success, Saul falls into the temptation of believing it's about him. Believing his own PR, believing that he is actually a pretty cool king. In fact, this nation wouldn't be without him. You know, and, and hey, who needs God anyway? I'm so good, I'm so good at leading my men into battle. Um, I deserve a monument, an altar built to myself. And so here we find God telling the prophet Samuel that Saul is no good to be king anymore. And it intersects right in the moment when Samuel finds Saul building an altar to himself. So we can see what is going on here. Saul has had a change of heart. God has had a change of heart about him. And so the intersection at this point in the story is very, very profound in the transition that it takes in the history of Israel that is to come. So what happens in this story? Well, carries on. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, we're now into chapter 18, the woman came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and timbrels and lyres. Um, David just killed the Philistine being Goliath here. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but 
with, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. He kept a close eye on David because he was threatened by him, wasn't he? And yet the funny thing about this human imagination that we're all victim of at times is that here is David coming back from his first battle. And how many people had he slayed? One. One. One big fella. Okay, so the story is out there. Of course, when, when Goliath fell, all of the Philistines ran and they chased him down and they, they probably killed a whole lot more. But in reality, David would only have been credited with the one big guy. But by the time he gets back, there are songs and there are stories. And so by the time they come back into town and all the women folk and the younger people and the, and the, and the older men, the ex-warriors are in the streets singing, David has killed his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. And Saul is like, I'm over it. I'm over it already. What's this young fellow getting all the praise and glory for? I'm the man around here. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the, vic, the one who brings victory to the nation, the nation of Israel. And so here, this blind fury is starting to rear its head. It said then, the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Just imagine that. Put in the actions there. I'll keep reading. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. And here's the thing. The Lord had departed from Saul. And why had he departed from Saul? Well, if you go somewhere and you build a monument, an altar to yourself, you are usually going to find that God's going to say, if that's the way you think, you're on your own, buddy. If you think you can do this without me, just try it. Just see how it goes. See how it works out. And this is essentially what is occurring here. When we read that the Lord sent an evil spirit, uh, the interpretation can be easy to make that Saul is just a victim. No, he's not. He's not a victim at all. He set this up himself. And so what happens is evil is present in the absence of the Lord. All right? Simple as that. Because we live in a world where there are powers and principalities of darkness. You take yourself out of the covering of the things of God and you will be exposed to demonic influences. It's as simple as that. And so when the Lord sent an evil spirit, all it means is that evil is going to be present in the, in the lack of the presence of God, the covering of the Lord. The Lord was with David. The Lord was no longer with Saul. So here we have this blind fury. And the blind fury comes because Saul, for the first time probably in a decade of being king, realizes that he's not irreplaceable. The thing about being a king is you think you're pretty cool. The thing about being the king is you know that you're chosen. The thing about being a king is that you have people bow down to you. But to find out that he is no longer favored in God's eyes and the one who's to come is this little brat who's only about 14 years old must have really rubbed salt in his wound. Yeah? Think about that. Okay, you're the boss, but he's the next boss. And they're singing about him in the streets. He's only about 14 years old. And he slayed tens of thousands. And you're supposed to have only slayed thousands. Not only that, but Saul was, was, was uh, jealous of David's popularity. You know, here they were singing songs about him. They hadn't sung songs about Saul in the same fashion. And then Saul's anger 
This is why his blind fury was uncontrollable. Because it's a very simple story, isn't it? This blind anger, so blind in fact, that Saul, as a soldier, couldn't even pin David to the wall from probably a few meters away. So this, you can imagine this was just a, an outrageous, just a burst of fury, just blind, throwing that spirit and wanting to pin him to the wall. But he couldn't, because it was just an, just, just an uncontrollable anger. And it's this uncontrolled nature of the anger, anger that tells us that this is a demonic influence that's going on here as well. You see, when we, we read about evil spirits in Scripture, um, we have to think about it carefully. Uh, it's very easy in Christian circles, every time we do something wrong, to say, oh, the devil made me do it. I think the devil gets a lot of blame for stuff that he doesn't do. Honestly. You see, fallen human nature is wickedly wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things Scripture tells us. And so we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that the devil made me do it. When the devil didn't make you do it, you did it yourself. And it came out of your own heart and your own thinking. And sometimes you weren't even thinking, and it came anyway. And you go, where did that come from? Hmm. Whoa, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And so when we look at uh, acts of evil and we look at human nature, we've got to stop and realize that we are all capable of things that we would probably never ever thought were possible to come from us out of our own mouths or actions that came with our own hands. But when you get a situation like this with Saul, there's an uncontrollable rage and a rational rage and a consistent rage that just flares up out of nowhere. You know, here they are uh, after the battle, David is playing music, soothing music, worshipping the Lord. It's the aftermatch function. After, a, after whooping the Philistines, okay? And in the middle of nowhere, out of nowhere, Saul with a spear in his hand tries to kill the band, okay? Tries to kill this young guy. Totally unjustified. And, and, and here we are, dealing with the rawness of human emotion. Feelings are, are really a big part of what I'm talking about here. Feelings of... As you can imagine, David going to bed at night, just going, how does this happen to me? This is just so unfair. I went, I didn't ask to, you know, I didn't ask for this trouble. All I did was go and help people win a battle. I put myself at risk and I threw the stone and it killed the giant and... You know, and I just happen to go out and, and, the, and the men like me and we win the battles and you know, the people are happy with me. I didn't set that up. I'm just a shepherd boy. Yeah, and he must have gone through that in his mind again and again and again. And on the other side of town, there was, well, on the other side of the palace in this case, is Saul going, I hate that little fella. Where did he come from? Why, why, why should he take my throne? How come the people are so pleased with him? I've been leading this nation for a decade. We've won plenty of battles. I've slayed plenty of Philistines and Amalekites and, and others, and they don't sing me songs. I bet he wrote this song. That's right, he's a musician. He would have written that song and given it to him to sing. I'll get him, the little brat. All of this stuff going on in his head. 
You know, it's been said that life is 10% about what happens to us and 90% of how we respond to it. Yeah? Saul is not responding very well, is he? Saul is not responding very well. And this creates this tension, this, this energy between the two of them that Saul is generating, but David is a victim of. And people, we've got to realize that um, feelings are real. They're real, but they're not necessarily true. Feelings are real, but not necessarily true. Because we all have feelings, and if we allow our feelings and our emotions to determine the outcomes in our lives, then life will be very illogical. Won't make sense. And this is the, the story that we're seeing today. Illogical feelings, illogical emotions coming to bear upon one another that makes a scenario where the person with the power is trying to undo the person without the power, and therefore there's this confusion. So what they need is a peacemaker, don't they? A counsellor, a reconciler. Well, they have one. And they have one in the name of Jonathan, King Saul's son. So let's meet the peacemaker. 1 Samuel chapter 18, 1-4, we meet Jonathan. This is how it goes. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved, his, loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. So the shepherd boy now has the best. The shepherd boy now has the best of everything that he needs to fight a battle. And not only the best of everything, but he has the love and the affection of a best friend. And who could it be but the king's son? So as the story unfolds in, and, uh, in, in chapters 18 and 19, we find that Saul is repeatedly, repeatedly trying to, to kill David. And we get to this point in the early part of chapter 19, and Jonathan appears on the scene again, his, his best friend. And he tries to make peace between Saul and David. And this is how it outworks itself. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you and will tell you what I find out. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will, be not, will not be put to death. So Jonathan called David and told him the whole conversation. He brought him to Saul, and David was with Saul as before. Wow. The peacemaker. And you know, the irony in this story is this. Is that if there is any person in this story who should have been grumpy at David for being anointed as the next king, 
It should have been Jonathan. Why? Because he is probably the king's favorite son, would have been the next in line to inherit the kingdom after his father Saul dies. So it seems like a strange scenario, doesn't it? The person who should have been the most envious and the most jealous of David's rise to fame and glory is the person who's actually creating peace. In another scenario, in a real-world environment, as you would argue, it would have been Jonathan running around trying to put David to the sword because he was the threat to Jonathan himself becoming the next king. But this wasn't the case. Jonathan appeals to his father, and he says, Dad, look, get your head right. This guy is for you, not against you. And so here we have logic appealing to a demonic spirit, which doesn't always work. Because if somebody has a demonic spirit, it doesn't matter how rational things might appear to be, to them they will say, but I want this outcome. I don't care about the facts. This is the way I see things. The facts mean nothing to me. Forget about the facts. The outcome I want is the outcome I want, and that's all there is to it. However, Jonathan appealed to him, and for a time there, Saul must have sobered up and said, yeah, you're right. And he made this oath that he will not kill David as long as the Lord lives. So how long is the Lord going to live? The Lord's going to live forever. Right? So David says, great, I'm safe. And so it says in those final verses there, it says, he brought him to Saul and David was with Saul as before. So they were, they were on the same side. They were friends. Great. So life goes on as normal. So what's normal? When you're uh, in the armies of Israel, you go out, face the Philistines again. So I'll leave that little graph there as it is. We'll carry on. Once more war broke out, and David went out and fought the Philistines. He struck them with such force that they fled before him. But an evil spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he was sitting in his house with a spear in his hand while David was playing the lyre. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. That night, David made good his escape. Saul sent his men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, warned him, if you don't run for your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. (laughs) Nothing's changed. Why? Because not wrestling against flesh and blood here. And what goes on? Life goes on as normal. David goes out. He's the blessed warrior. Saul should have been championing him. He should have been celebrating the fact that this, this guy with the rest of his generals goes out and the, and the Philistines flee in front of him because they, they hit so strongly, it says, that the Philistines leave. And again, in the aftermatch function, when they're playing the harp, singing 10 guitars, talking about how they, they whipped them, Saul's there with a spear in his hand. Seems a strange thing to do at the aftermatch function anyway. And he tries to throw it at kill David in this instantaneous rage. The party is ruined. Okay? Saul's trying to kill the band. The spear is quivering in the wall. And I'm sure everything stops and David runs because he knows that the promise that Saul had made has been broken. Why? Not because of flesh and blood, but because of demonic activity in his life, which he had opened himself up to by declaring himself worthy of praise and honor and glory by building an altar to himself. You know, it's um, 
It's really easy to throw spears. Throw spears of, of judgment. Throw spears of slander. Throw spears of gossip. Throw spears of malice. Particularly when those spears are ill-informed or illogical or irrational. When you don't know the full story. When you only know half of a story or a quarter of a story or you just heard a rumour. You can throw those spears and they have the ability to inflict a huge amount of pain. And David was so confused. He didn't know what to do with himself. You know, he's no longer safe in the place where he should be the safest. In the king's palace, having served the king for as long and as well as he had. So what does David do? He decides to go back to the only person that he can find some comfort with. And that's Samuel. You know Samuel, the guy that anointed him, said no to all his brothers, and he anointed him. And so this is how this goes. God's presence overwhelms the chaos. When David had fled and made his escape, he went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went to Naoth and stayed there. Word came to Saul, David is in Naoth at Ramah. So he, went, so he sent men to capture him. But when they saw a group of prophets prophesying, with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent, a third, sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Now, this is a, this is a great picture. It really is. You've got David who is absolutely confused. And he goes to Samuel and he's saying like, Samuel, I need help. And Samuel says, okay, lie on my leather couch. $100 an hour, you can have a counseling session. And David's lying on the couch, pouring his heart out to Samuel saying, ever since you anointed me king, life has been miserable for me. Because I'm anointed, I can do nothing wrong. Every time I throw a rock, it kills a Philistine. Every time I throw my spear, another one of my enemies falls off his horse. Every time I sing, angels appear. Every time I greet somebody, they like me. Life is terrible. <laughs> and it's you who did it, Samuel. You anointed me king. Help me. Help me. Help me because I don't know what I've done wrong. Help me because... I'm doing what I can do for the best of my ability to serve the God of Israel. But there is the king who hates me and he's wanting to kill me. And so Samuel does what only he can do best. And he says, look, I want you to come with me to Naoth. I want you to come with me to where the other prophets are. And there we're going to begin to worship. Because David... You can't rectify what's going on in Saul's life in your own strength. You can't change that man's heart. But what you can do, David, is you can put everything about your life into perspective. You see, we're going to worship the God who called you. We're going to worship the God who created you. Not only that, but we're going to worship the God who created your enemy, Saul. We're going to worship the God who gave Israel its identity, who rescued them out from the hand of the Egyptians under slavery. 
who gave you your first father, Abraham, and called him out of nowhere to become a nation. We're going to worship the God who created the heavens and the earth, who created us in such a way that put our place in the universe so supremely perfect that our world exists as it does today. David, why don't we go together and worship this God and all your problems will be put in perspective. And so they did. They worshipped. And the power of God must have been so powerful there as they worshipped, as they prophesied, as they declared the goodness and the glory of God. Uh, the atmosphere changed as the Spirit of God fell upon them. And when these soldiers came to kill David, they came close and, and they, they fell on their faces starting to worship. And so Saul is now totally frustrated. And so what happens? He says, I'll go. Finally, he himself left for Ramah and went to the great cistern of Siku. And he, said, and he asked, where are Samuel and David? Over in Naoth at Ramah, they said. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah. But the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. And this is why people say, is Saul also amongst the prophets? God has its victory. And, and you can see how this, it's almost comical, isn't it? Saul's going along, walking along, going, I'm going to kill David, I'm going to kill David, I'm going to kill David. And he's getting closer to the nail, I'm going to kill David, I'm going to kill David. God is good. I mean, God is wonderful. I'm going to kill David. God is just amazing. God made, you know, God made me king over Israel. Israel is an amazing nation. Oh, God, you made the heavens and the earth. And he falls down on his face and strips off all his outer garments, naked in the point that he was defenseless. He got rid of his military apparel. And he spent a day and a night just worshipping God. Not only in the presence of God, but in the presence of Samuel. And in the presence of David, whom he wanted to kill. And all of his, his soldiers, who would have had their pay docked for not killing David, I'm sure. But for having a couple of days off worshipping God. And here, God has the final say. Because he says, look, for all of your humanity, for all of your illogical logic, there is something bigger than all of us, and it is me, and I am. I am. I am God. And there's a place and there's a time for all of us where we will meet again. And regardless of, of culture, regardless of education, regardless of tensions, regardless of crime, regardless of war, regardless of ridiculous feelings that are held between us, there will ultimately come a place where every knee shall bow. And David and Saul and Jonathan and, 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 and Samuel all got a taste of what heaven would be like on earth. And for us, whenever we're challenged with people who carry inappropriate, illegitimate, illogical, irrational thoughts or feelings or emotions or gossip against us. Just as David is learning to be king by coming back into the presence of God, we too find our respite there. We too find our place of healing there. We too find that above and beyond all those tensions, those human issues of existence, only in the presence of God are all our problems right-sized. And God is glorified. Amen. Let's stand.
Lord, the human condition is such that we, we are hurt and we hurt people. And for that reason, we, we look at the story and we, we see our si- ourselves on both sides of this equation. Things we've said which have been like swords or spears thrown at victims. Illogical, inappropriate, irrational maybe. And yet we too feel at times we are dodging the spears and the swords of those who would accuse us. What a human story. And even as those of us who, who have tried to be the Jonathans, the peacemakers, and we come to these half-baked arrangements which appear good, they appear like they're going to work and then they fall over. All that good work undone. Lord, we, um, we come before you today and, and we ask for your forgiveness for the pain we've inflicted. But we ask your forgiveness too when we've been pained and we haven't looked high enough. We haven't seen the perspective that you hold, the perspective that Samuel held when he said, let's go to Naoth and worship. Let's go and right-size our problems by putting God in the picture, putting him right at the centre. Father, our human condition is such that we're frail and we're always seeking, like Saul, to build an altar or a monument in our own defence of how good we are, how well we've done and why we don't deserve this. Lord, that too is meaningless. Meaningless pursuit after our own gain. We choose to put you first. And when we see the Saviour Jesus who died, to put it all right, we realise that you ultimately love us, even in our confusion, because you've put a Saviour in the middle of the story. When we can't undo the mess, you are there to change our lives and to forgive us. So we're grateful. It's all we can be, humbled and grateful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.